On this adventurous episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 47 and 48 from 1981. Alec Peters considers the exciting hobby of prop collecting. Lou, Max, and Rich discuss the life and career of George Takei. Bert Bruce talks about the phenomenon of Halley's Comet. Bobby Nash considers the connection between real-world shuttles and the ones we see in movies. Plus, Star Trek The Motion Picture newspaper strips. Make your own costume book. Star Trek Missions card game. And more on this episode of Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, telly ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine, or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. Join us at the Music City Multicon, October 28th through 30th in Lebanon, Tennessee. Fantastic convention for not only board games, but also video games. They have huge gaming rooms, just about everything you can imagine there. And the first weekend in January, the 6th through the 8th, in Memphis, Tennessee, is ShadowCon. Another convention that has quite a bit of gaming, plus real-world SEA action events. It's another fun, uh, fan-run con that we enjoy going to. Starlog Magazine, issue number 47, cover date, June 1981. Hi, this is Alec Peters, and I am here to talk about a Starlog article by an author named David Hutchinson, all about the props of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, what's interesting is this article is 1981. The movie memorabilia business really didn't get started until the, until the 1990s. That's when things started to take off. Uh, there was a big sale at MGM. Um, a company called Profiles in History started around then. And uh, that's when people started realizing that, wow, there's a lot of value here. A lot of people were interested. Everyone wanted a piece of the show that they were interested in. And for a lot of us, that's Star Trek. So finding this article from 1981 is really, um, ironically, I have never seen this article before. It basically deals with uh, uh, Brick Price, who was um, who uh, had a, a company called Big Pro- Brick Price's Movie Miniatures. Um, and, 
he was well known in the Valley and had been kind of working with the people over at Paramount on other projects. And so when the movie came around, Star Trek, the motion picture, they asked him uh, and his company, you know, to build what wound up being over 1200 props and, and miniatures for Star Trek, the motion picture. And if you can, you know, find this, uh, go to the Internet Archive and find this article. It's a great article that, that tells you all about the process. And, and we're not going to repeat the article. You should go read it. But I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it. I, because Star Trek The Motion Picture was far enough back from Star Trek The Next Generation. And, and the movie in, prop industry really didn't get going till almost 20, you know, 15 years later. So finding this article is great because it really gives you a look into the past on how props were done. Now you've got big, you know, big companies. There's a big company in the Valley that handles um, uh, most of the prop building for a lot of the big, big movies now. And so it's changed in the past. There were small companies like Rick Price's company or HMS, uh, Michael Moore's outfit, um, that was Michael Moore, Steve Horsch, and um, oh, another gentleman who uh, passed away, whose name I forget. Smaller companies, guys who knew how to cast and to make make stuff, basically, were handling the props. Um, and that's the, the situation with Brick Price. The other thing was the movie industry was just, you know, had had really not gotten into that, into what we know now as the movie industry, which is, you know, every movie is $100 million or more, right? And then you have all, of course, you have all the Marvel and Star Wars and all those movies that are $300 million or more. So now things have really changed. Back then, you know, even Star Trek The Motion Picture, everyone's doing things on a shoestring. So a lot of stuff is last minute. There's a, it's a great part in this article where Brick Price talks about how uh, the construction of the space suits for um, uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was an absolute disaster when it started because... The, the prop shop at Paramount built a spacesuit out of a wetsuit, which is, doesn't breathe at all. And just, it was, and, and use, and it was just a disaster. You look at the photo and you go, Oh God, that really looks like shit. The article is great. Cause it talks about all that. And you really get a feeling for the way things work between a production and a prop shop. Now, you know, by the, you know, once we got into Star Trek, the next generation and the budgets were, were pretty good and everything, they, they, they could spend the time and they and and specialty stop shops started propping up. So when you got to something like Enterprise now at the turn of the, the millennium there to get their spacesuits made, which are beautiful, by the way, they had they're a company that, you know, one company that they use for those. That's their specialty is making high performance costumes for the movie industry. So the quality improves significantly uh, and, and the props, too. You can see. You can see the way the props progress through Next Generation and Deep Space Nine to what you see now. Uh, now, I have a phaser, for example, from Star Trek the motion the uh, the 2009 Star Trek. Right, that that I have a phaser and a communicator, and they're beautiful. They never would have been made this well for a TV show, but there's metal on them. And now you have Star Trek Discovery, and those props are amazing. They're out of this world, literally. Uh, they're just so beautiful because the budgets are so enormous. The budget for Star Trek Discovery season one was, was tens of millions of dollars per episode. And so they had the money to spend on, uh, on, on these, but back in 1981, 
in, in the, you know, when was uh, motion picture was 78, 79, boy, different world. They were using vacuum form plastic for a lot of these, these props. And, and I've handled, I've handled an original tricorder from, um, I, and it was a hero tricorder, which was, it was a piece of crap. The phasers were vacuum form plastic and they had multiple versions the, the, you know, the bio buckles were vacuum form plastic. Now I did have a, um, Klingon disruptor from the motion picture and it was a found item. It was built on the, the built on the receiver and handle of a M16 toy, um, with vacuum form plastic uh, uh, on top of it. The, the industry has changed significantly since then. And also the design, I mean, you know, you look at the design of the props these days and they're so much more sophisticated. And, and the construction, of course, you know, matches that. I think, you know, so it's great looking back at this article because it really shows you how things were in the early days of prop uh, making. I say early days of Star Trek prop making. Now, you can go back to the original series. It's even worse. I mean, it's crazy when you look at the hero props from then, how bad they were. Tricorders weren't bad, but boy, even the phasers were just, you know, the, the construction you, it doesn't show up on screen. Props were are generally made good enough. Uh, they used to be made just good enough so they looked okay on screen. Nowadays, they look okay. You can hold a Star Trek phaser from the new sh- from Discovery and you go, this looks like it works. Also, the other thing, which is pointed out in this article, is um, they were trying to make a 23rd century prop and stuff 20th century electronics into it, right? And that is true. Um, that is that really is true. How hard it it, it is because you know you're miniaturizing everything in the future, uh, so, uh, uh, assumedly, um, but we can't do that. So how do they do that? Well, a lot of times a battery pack is you know on in the costume and there's a wire running from the prop to the costume and such. Yeah, so things are the engineering you know back then was just a lot more primitive than it is now, uh, and we have a lot more. Uh, capabilities now uh, than 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 we did. So yeah, so it, it's a it's. I, I urge you to read the article. Prop and prop collecting is it's a, an interesting hobby. I have gone through a lot of phases in the last twenty years. Let's see, two thousand six. So uh, how many years is that to, to two thousand twenty two? That's eight uh, sixteen years. Sixteen years ago, I started collecting, and uh, my collecting has gone up. Now I've had a big collection. And then I've sold a lot of it. It's hard having a Captain uh, Kirk tunic from the original series hanging in your house when it's worth $70,000. And you're just scared all the time that a moth's going to get to it or the sun's going to get to it or it's going to go up in a fire. I, and I had a, one of Kirk's costumes from the Star Trek motion picture. Now I've really whittled my collection down to you know, a few dozen items from Star Trek, a few dozen items from Battlestar Galactica, a couple Captain America shields, but that's about it. I just, I don't, you know, I think I'm past the point where things, an accumulation of things um, necessarily are going to make, make me happy. What I love, what I've always loved is the, the history of these props and authenticating props. Um, the Captain Kirk tunic I had in question came, literally walked into PropWorks one, uh, offices one day. And after a while, people started, you know, um, people who knew were like, I think that's a Captain Kirk because it had Captain's braids on it. And I'm just like, uh, I'm not convinced. And it wasn't until we screen matched the braid that I was convinced it was real. So 
things like that are a part of the hobby. But you also have to know that oh, there's so much stuff that's fake out there. So much stuff that's fake. People are, oh, I knew someone who worked on the show. That's how I got this. That's like the oldest story in the book. And you can't believe it. You know, you you you, you either need provenance, which is I here's the chain of custody of the item from the time it came off the set. Um, here's who had it. Here's how, how I got it. Or you can screen match an item. You can take an item and, and go, you know, hold up a glass and say, see this glass? This is the one that's on screen because see this scratch right here? And see that you can like, uh, you know that it's exactly the one that you see on screen. That's called screen matching. So those are the two ways to prove something is real. And in the Star Trek world, there is, listen, if you are a Star Trek fan and you're listening to this podcast, you're in luck because there is so much stuff from Star Trek. Tens of thousands of items. More than any other show, uh, if, if you're collecting, you are in the right spot because Star Trek has so much stuff because they have so many shows and so many episodes. So you can collect and find inexpensive items as well as very expensive items. Um, so that's all possible. So there you go. I uh, have a blog you can and you can find it at Star Trek, uh, Star Trek Props.com or PropWorks.com, P-R-O-P-W-O-R-X.com. There's also some great resources. We have a Facebook group, Star Trek Props, Costumes, and Auctions, which was the name of the blog originally. That group on Facebook has almost 5,000 members, and um, so lots of people talking about it. Um, There's some great people with some great collections and show in there, and I urge you to go check them out. Um, You're you're welcome to email me, alec at PropWorks, P-R-O-P-W-O-R-X.com. Um, I'm always uh, available to answer questions. I love um, helping people, advising people for free. I give you the, you know, I will. I'm, I'm more than happy to tell you what I'm, uh, what I know, and and help you make good decisions in the hobby. And most importantly, if if it's a, a hobby you like, if it's something you will enjoy that will bring you pleasure, I certainly enjoy this article in Starlog Magazine. I enjoy the history of things because let's face it. You can't take it with you. When we die, we die without our stuff going with us. So despite what the Egyptians thought. <laughs> so so make sure you have your priorities right. The stuff's not going to make you happy. It's, it'll bring you a little joy sitting on your shelf, knowing it's from your favorite show. But keep, keep things in perspective. Okay, that's it. I'm Alec Peters. Uh, also, uh, please watch our film, uh, Axnar. A-X-A-N-A-R.com. You can see our short film, Prelude to Axanar, The Vulcan Scene. Uh, It is generally considered the the best Star Trek fan film of all time because it doesn't really look like a fan film. Um, And we're making two more episodes, which hopefully we'll have out in 2023. So that's it for now. Um, Axanar.com for that. And you can also check us out, our little film studio at Aries, A-R-E-S, studios.net. And um, check out what we're doing at our little film studio. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, Since you are part of all that is, part of its purpose, there is more to you than just this brief speck of existence. You are just a visitor here in this time and this place, a traveler through it. Star Pod Trek. Celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Star Trek, the motion picture, make your own costume book. This is a curiosity from our collection. Try to describe it to our listeners, cutie pie. Well, so it 
it tells you how to make your own costumes that were seen in Star Trek The Motion Picture. It's got drawings and patterns. Um, it, it's not like the kind of patterns you actually buy it at a store, but it's but it has drawings that you can outline and, and make your own costumes, and it gives a description and and a few little pieces of info. So the inserts include photos from the motion picture, and then it shows pictures of kids probably around 10 to 12 years old, not wearing Ben Cooper costumes, but instead their homemade costumes. Very rudimentary versions of uniforms are seen in the motion picture, plus alien attire and alien masks. And, yeah, and some of the jewelry, too, and accessories. So, yeah, it shows kids making them, um, and I guess that it's pretty simple. I mean, of course, they expect, right, the moms to make these costumes, but it looks like it's pretty easy to follow. What catches my attention is on the cover, it has the Czar and I, a unique alien, one of the aliens that, as a kid, when I had the motion picture trading cards, I was hoping to see that in the motion picture and never saw it. And you'll see that throughout the book, how to dress like an Andorian. Yeah, it has different aliens, and a lot of these aliens were just seen in the background in the motion picture. They weren't um, they, they weren't that prominent. But, you know, hey, at least there were enough aliens to make a costume book, you know? What's very interesting is that the preface is written by Robert Fletcher. The costume designer for the motion picture. What do you think about this introduction and his explaining the mindset behind his designs? It was an interesting read, and, I mean, it. you know, it's... It's a shame that like that the book wasn't written by him. I mean, he just did the preface. So I like that it has the, it has um, Spock's costume, and the um, the inscription that he wore when he came aboard the Enterprise. The black one. Yeah, the black one, and and it says that that was actually that it represents some Vulcan concepts. And he said that it's different for each Vulcan, but I don't think we've seen that. I think when we see it, it's always the same letters that every Vulcan is wearing. And it's got the um, the Vulcan Masters uh, necklace, too, how to make that, which was pretty cool. And then it's funny because I remember as a kid, there would be, they would just call them general pointed ears or alien ears. You'd find them at novelty stores or around Halloween time at, at department stores, Bradley's, Caldor's, what have you. But this one showed you how to make your own pointed ears out of wax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's strange. It seems like it. Would, would be kind of heavy trying to put it on. So the whole point of this book is don't buy things. You can make it yourself, which is a great idea. It's, I love creative things when I was a kid. Uh, my brother and I constantly, my mother was saving us oatmeal containers, shoe boxes, tissue boxes, paper towel rolls. Just if you're a kid that loves creative things, this is in your wheelhouse. I wish I had this as a kid. I never even knew this existed. This was something that I found as an adult collector. Yeah, I think it's a rare book. It must not have been um, a big seller. But, but yeah, it, it is very interesting to look at now and to see, like, oh, you can actually make these things. Even though it's not professional grade, but it's still pretty cool. And also, when it tells you how to make the different alien costumes, it gives you a description of the aliens. The motion picture had so much potential for building off of the background characters, which they never tapped into. For example, Andorian. The slender blue-skinned Andorians have antennae which spring out of their foreheads and allow them to communicate over great distances. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, that that they never used on the show. So yeah, the book has has information like that too. It's more than just the costumes. If you just want it for for more information, it's pretty neat to have. Yeah, great book. If you're a motion picture collector, it it has to be in your library. Yes, I'm Dr. Durant of Dr. Durant Sanctum on YouTube, Rich Early. And next to me is... It's Max Overnighter and the one, the only, Lou Melagrana, founder of Melagrana Inflatables. So what are we talking about tonight? We are talking about um, the fantastic George Takai. Is it Takai or Takei? How, how is it pronounced? Takai. Takai. Okay. I, I always thought it was George Takai. Well, yeah, let's yeah, call him. We'll call him George Takai. Oh my! Oh my! Yeah, I mean, of, yeah. of course, everyone everyone knows him now more so somewhat for his Star Trek appearances than for his appearances on the Howard Stern show, right? How he sort of became uh, he became famous <laughs> through that whole st- Howard, Howard Stern, Stern stuff. Show much. Yeah. yeah. But um, these articles were pretty interesting on him because they were written back in the early 80s when he's he's just coming off of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was not the massive hit that everybody thought it was going to be. People are starting to appreciate it again now. But back then, around 79, 1980, it, it really wasn't considered a, a, a fantastic part of the and he even mentions this in the article that it was sort of considered a failure in a way yeah and you have this guy on there that has uh you know this uh i mean it's funny to see him in real life versus personality on the show i think in real life he's quite a bit more colorful and but he's still as potent today as he was back then you know and he he definitely uh reading that article he definitely had quite an interesting beginning like even the thing where he said he interviewed with Roddenberry for Star Trek he's like I didn't think it went well because we basically talked about you know we didn't talk too much about just because of topics I thought he was being polite and then he offered me the role but but the thing is I do like a good story and when I was reading the story um, I found it to be you know very interesting and what what struck me is because I wasn't really familiar with a lot of his earlier work other than uh, before before Star Trek, but uh, you know when he was talking about his personal life, you know when he was talking about the uh, time in the Japanese you know internment camp uh, during World War II, and I'm going, what? Wait a minute, yeah, how old is this guy? You know, and and I, I was thinking, right. wait a minute, and I had to go back and look. You know, he was born in 1937, so so yeah, I mean World War II, uh, you know, he, he, the internment camp started in what 43, 44, and uh, as he was talking about that. You know, and uh, I did find that to be interesting. The thing I always knew about him, because this was a movie that used to play every, it was on Channel 56 in my area. It used to play probably once a month, every Friday night, and I would stay up and watch it. I I just have a fascinating, it was the Green Berets with John Wayne. Oh, yeah. He talks about how he was in the Green Berets with John Wayne in that film. He played one of the the heroic Vietnamese uh, captains or generals or something along those lines, and he he dies a heroic death in the film, like detonating a charge that that blows up a bunch of you know enemy uh, Viet Cong that's storming the storming the, the base, you know. <laughs> and he he just you know he says that because he was filming that movie, which of course you know what guy's going to give up a chance to go film a movie with John Wayne? He missed out on being two of the 
on being in two of the most classic Trek episodes, and that was the uh, the gamesters of Trisk the the gamesters of Triskelon and the trouble with Tribbles. And he said that he was supposed to have a pretty significant role in Triskelon, but uh, they wound up giving it to Chekhov, I believe, because he couldn't get out Captain. of the shooting schedule for Green Berets. And that was always yeah. the sort of the problem with the side cast, you know, your, your Chekhov and your Sulu. They were more like the secondary, the second tier characters. The show was really all about McCoy, Spock, and Kirk. And then everybody else, they might come in as a secondary character, but they never filled those characters out. Now, of course, he has that great episode that I think his favorite episode was in the, the Naked Time where he's, he's, he's the fencer. He kind of gets to show off his fencing skills. He, he always talks he's about how he's quite a fencer. He's quite a good fencer. I'll give him that. Yeah, yeah. He was a and good it, fencer. It, I mean. You know, and you hear the stuff throughout the years about the uh, the rivalry and how he was mad that, you know, Shatner got more screen time and he didn't get enough. But in a way, I'm like, well, you know, that it's the show is about Captain Kirk. It's not about Sulu. You right. know, he was just filling out the right. cast of the ship with that. And I also right. find it interesting in the in the article, he actually talks about that. He, I don't know if it's sort of a backhanded compliment or sort of a passive aggressive thing, but he mentions that on... <laughs> Star Trek, the motion picture, he's like, well, you know, Bill was uh, quite interesting. He, he made sure that we were all his straight men. Uh, Bill is quite a wit, is, is, he says in the article. <laughs> and, stuff like that. and he's like, as if to say he's sort of giving him, but you can sense that he's sort of uh, angry with him or, or has that sort of underlying animosity towards him. I read mm. somewhere, maybe it was on Howard Stern or one of those shows when they were doing it, and it might have been George Sakai, but one of them was saying how... Um, Something about, yeah, there was always kind of that rivalry and, and Shatner's big deal was like, how many of the, how many of the women could he, you know, how many of the women could Captain Kirk get, you know, everybody else right. and obviously not caring that they're the color green or whatever it may be and that kind of stuff. But that was, that was actually before uh, I even knew, I think it was George Takai. I thought it was, I could be wrong, but even before I knew that George Takai was, uh, he was actually gay. I had no, I had no idea. I had no idea until I actually, I think he came out. I heard him on Howard Stern or something. I never knew that. I'm just like, well, the guy's really cool. He's an awesome fencer and so on. Must be the big ladies man. And then like, he's no, I've been married. I think he was been married for like for years before that or something like that. And he just kind of, I don't know if that was kept under wraps or whatever it was, but yeah. He I just think kinda... in this article, if, if I'm not wrong, I don't know if they bring any of that up about his private life. Yeah. He does talk, which is kind of interesting. You you guys were talking about being uh, pressing into things. He He's ahead of the curve because he talks about this book he's writing about ninjas. It's and it's a fictional no novel. No ninjas and back like, on at that TV point back time, then. Ninjas hadn't quite blown up yet. We did probably have the Shogun miniseries on TV, so there were samurai. Is that the 70s? No, but when did they come out with the Master? That was in the 80s, right? Now, well, that was definitely the 80s. That so was, that was the, the 80s. Enter the Ninja yeah. came out, I think, in 84. Shokushugi, yeah. Yeah, that, like once that Enter the Ninja with, who was it, Frank? Frank O'Neill. I was going to say Franco Harris, I don't know why, but once that came out and made it to the theater, and I was like, what is all this about? There's a guy jumping off a waterfall and like a white, you know, pajama set, and like landing with a bunch of, you know, one right. side and everything just exploded. So for George Takai to like do that way in advance, that's like a, that was, you know, that was pretty far ahead of the curve. You have to say that. Yeah. I was going to say, cause you know, I mean, you know, the seventies were full of, you know, them, the martial arts stuff, you know, the, 
you know, Kung Fu theater and the, the show Kung Fu with Carradine and that. Um, but yeah, and, and, but ninjas was a, was a totally, totally new thing. I mean, no, it all was, that was right. The ninjas was yeah. like that, that, and he was trying to, which is funny because I remember when I was probably in college, there were these ninja books out by Eric von Lustbander. You know, you, you yes. Those, those, yes. Those, yeah. oh my God, read them, you know, like, it, it was, so he sort of went in there. I, I never even knew that George Takai wrote those books. And it's funny because the titles of the books almost could serve as the titles of an episode of Star Trek. You know, the first book's called Mirror Friend, Mirror Foe. Like, you know, it's like that sounds like an episode of Star Trek. Totally. Oh, absolutely. Well, the stuff that I thought that was interesting that he did was that he dubbed a lot of the American versions of the Japanese like kaiju movies he he dubbed some of the voices in rodan which is a favorite of mine and uh godzilla raids again right a few movie. other of those japanese horror movies and it was kind of cool to see that he was you know they hired him to do the dubbing of the voices you know those american international dubs when they would release them on tv or theatrically in the u.s he was dubbing the voices oh my look at that yeah. monster well- <laughs> yeah. you know and, and the thing about it is the, the way that those were done as opposed to like a lot of the kung fu theater stuff um the the it seemed like the the mouths matched the inflections <laughs> all matched a little bit more and you know i mean unless you were a lip reader you really didn't realize that they were you know, they originally the movies were done in Japanese or uh, any other foreign language for that matter. So right. I think those were those were done those are done really, really well. I think Star Trek was so iconic, and it's funny to think it only aired for three seasons. He, he talks about that in the article too. That you know, the first season it almost got canceled, and they did a letter writing campaign. It came back, and second season it almost got canceled, and, and the fans wrote up, and then the third season. I guess Roddenberry left during the third season. There was some issues and the third season is, you know, fans consider that sort of the weakest of the the three seasons. There's a lot of crazy episodes in there, but uh, you know, and then they wound up talking, he talks about the animated cartoon that came back, which right, is right, right around the time that he started doing conventions again. And that yeah. they, they sort of did it and they, they got the people to do the voices for the cartoon, like the original cast. And I think they got everybody. Unless, which is which is cool. That's really cool. Is that where the Neptunian came from, Doctor Durant, by chance? I <laughs> the think so, Neptunian. or think something similar to that, because they have yeah. a lot of yeah. The Neptunian definitely was not in the TV show, no, and neither was the the funky the funky cold Medina Mugato. Either the way he's dressed up, he, <laughs> the Mugato was the guy in a white ape suit. But I love yeah. the Mugato. The Migo Mugato is fantastic looking. The, the colors on it, it's definitely somebody was tripping acid that day for that thing. That's for sure. Oh, it's, it's a total crazy. 70s piece. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Well, it's funny, like, when you read the article, I had the, the piece in there where he said he went to do, like, he got invited to, like, his first kind of big Star Trek convention, but he thought it'd be something small, like normal. And he was all excited. They paid for him to come out, and he showed up, and there was, like, I don't know, 10,000 people there. He's like, it was crazy, like, just something he never expected, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, I don't know, every time I think about the Star Trek convention, I always get to that Saturday Night Live episode with William Shatner where he's yelling oh. at uh, the guy with the Spock ears. Did you ever kiss a girl? You know, that kind of thing. And just funny to kind of watch that. But it, it is amazing. Like, I, I can't imagine, like, you know, you're a kid 
you you you, have, you live in a concentration camp or you know what sorry encampment right. for japanese for five years you're not you know you don't know what's going on because you're too young and your parents aren't going to scare you and then you wind up becoming this really famous person like I guess at some point in your life, you move past that. I don't know if I would, to be honest, I'd be pretty upset, you know, but you know, he went on to do great things, you know, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And it's, 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 there's a line he has in the article that that's kind of interesting and and it was pressing. And I, I can't think of it off the top of my head here now, but it was along the lines that like, you know, we, we always, that's what Star Trek was about is we kind of always, wish for a world where everything is 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 decent and good you know because we're constantly living in a world where the future is uncertain and things don't seem like they're going to turn out all right so star trek was kind of a thing saying that yeah you know in the future everything is going to be all right we're going to have a a ship full of people from all different nationalities and races and everybody gets along and we're out there exploring the galaxy and and things like that and that probably means a lot to a, a a kid that you know, his own country threw him in an internment camp mm-hmm. because of his race, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he yeah. started in a very famous episode of the twilight zone. And it was famous because it was cut from the syndication packages for years called the encounter. And it's w- with him and Neville brand. And they're these two guys trapped up in an attic and it's, it's really, it's not a great episode, but it was along the lines. I I, forget, I think they cut it from, syndication because people thought it was a little crazy you know he he's sort of a guy that possibly helped the japanese do pearl harbor and neville brand is like a scumbag too like it's like they wind up killing each other at the end of the episode spoiler alert if you haven't seen it but it, it was a well-known episode if you haven't seen it by now everybody said you're yeah. either under the age of 10 or you just don't watch the twilight zone so but I was a Twilight Zone fanatic as a kid, uh, you know, when show. I would watch it in yeah. syndication. I remember reading, like, the, about the missing episodes. There was three or four that never made it to the syndication packages, and that was one that I always wanted to see. And I think they showed it one year on one of the, the, you know, up here they do the New Year's Eve Twilight Zone marathons where they yes. play the Twilight Zone for, yeah. I remember being a kid and staying up before the night before. Maybe it was Friday night or maybe it was every night. I think they did every night during the week. You would watch, yeah. you could watch the Honeymooners and then you could watch Star Trek, the original series, and then the Twilight Zone would come on and then yeah. I'd pass out and get up at four 30 in the morning, do my homework and then go to school, that kind of stuff. But <laughs> it, it was actually, I mean, like those were just, it, the shows are great. Well, that, you know, I mean, and he, and he continues to do, you know, to be outspoken, you know, in his political career, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, other humanitarian things that he's, that he's doing you know, still today. Yeah. I think that's really a cool thing when somebody that's famous and becomes a icon for people or potentially a role model, you know, uh, and especially when they have a lot of money and they don't need to do it, take the time to like actually do things that matter. I think that's really, really important. I think that's, that's a great thing that they do. Yeah. They talk about that in the article that he, he was very active in, uh, I think he was he was trying to get like public transportation in San Francisco where he was living at the time dealt with and he talks about how that sort of kept him from doing a lot of the Star Trek stuff and the Star Trek conventions and things along those lines. And it's interesting that this article was in nineteen eighty one, which is he was must have been pretty close to starting to shoot Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, because I believe yeah. that came out in nineteen eighty two. And then that was the one that just took off 
again. That really saved the series yeah. because they went back yeah. to the, the great storytelling. They they took a character from the series, Khan, and um and then they had colorful uniforms. Ricardo again, Montalban. Yeah. <laughs> Which and then they had the Howard Stern tie-in, right? That's they started pranking yeah. him and they call him saying, Oh, you know, this is Ricardo Montalban calling you. <laughs> oh, Ricardo. Hell, I'm Ricardo oh Montalban, and you're not. And you're not. But that's great too. It shows he's got a sense of humor. Like they they pranked him, yeah. and then then he wound up becoming a part of the show because they, you know, he wound up joking around with Howard Stern, and Howard Stern had him on all the time, and that oh, even yeah. brought him back, you know, front and center as a as a celebrity. Really sure. set him off. How old is he? So he's thirty seven. Nineteen thirty seven. He was born. Wow. What is he? Eighty so five. 80, yeah, that'd be 85 wow. years old now, right? Yeah, wow, yeah, he's up there. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely cool to see a guy who had a good career, especially if you, I mean, you think you start off life your first couple of years of life, you know, you're put in a camp. I mean, that was such a mess back then. They did that to people. But then to go on and make such a successful career for yourself is really cool. I think that's a really cool thing. And I think, uh, I think it's definitely commendable. You know, it's nice to see people who can succeed like that, even after something that, could otherwise be very traumatizing for people. Yeah. And I think that was, he kind of talks a little bit about that or, or maybe I just read into it that, you know, he wasn't, you know, obviously when you're working in the fifties and sixties, you're going to get cast as an Asian person for Asian roles. You're a samurai, you're a ninja, you're a karate guy. And on Star Trek, that wasn't what he was. He was just a regular member of the crew. And it wasn't right. like, okay, you know, Sulu, use your karate. You know, no, it was fencing. Fencing right. has nothing. To oh, do no. With Captain you know. Kirk had the karate chop. He had that karate <laughs> chop. Down. Yeah, he like just the one quick snap in the back of the neck, you know. My uh, favorite yeah, Kirk yeah. Fu move is when he just throws his entire body at the person. Like, he'll just run at them and he does like this big flying. <laughs> oh, like, the jump up. Both legs up so, in the air. And then he, so he falls down wait. at the same time. Like, it's. Sure. It's Wait, like I gotta tell you the most I'll insane tell you this. move. <laughs> I'll tell you this story. This is like so I have this friend Frank, and uh now he's a lawyer and he's very well behaved. But when we were in college back in the day in the in the eighties, late eighties, Frank was an animal. He would fight anybody anytime, just short little stocky time guy. So he comes back one night, and I was a very straight A student in college for the beginning and high school. And he comes in and he was so excited. So he's telling me the story how him and these two friends of ours, they're in the car and these other three guys cut him off and they get into some car thing, right? They wind up going into this parking lot and they start fist fighting, right? Which is not like the coolest thing, but this is the part that cracks me up. So Frank's telling me the guy punches him, hits him and knocks him into hood of the car. So Frank kind of, it's hard to explain this and think, but you guys, he kind of goes to his side on the hood. He doesn't fall down, but he's laying on the hood. And he goes, and I did the greatest thing. And I go, what'd you do? He goes, I gave him the Captain Kirk. <laughs> what the hell's a Captain Kirk? You know, where you take, he would take both his hands. He would like make them, like put his hands together, like he's real tight. And then he comes up and like, you know, swings both hands. I'm like, I don't really know if I could hit somebody like that and make it that effective. <laughs> I'm like, he goes, I hit him with the Captain Kirk and he fell down. And I'm like, Frank, you think you're going to go to jail for that? He says, no, no, we all left. We took off. Nobody, you know, whatever. It was just so funny. He was so he was like smiling. You know, he's got this big black eye. You know, his face is all scratched up. And he's like, "Yeah, I got him with the Captain Kirk. I knocked him down." I'm like, "What the hell is that?" But yeah, I think um, 
that one move that Kirk does that you were saying, Rich, where he just jumps up in the air. And he's like, you know, like jazz, jazz <laughs> hands up in the air. And he's just like, right. he's like, I don't know. What's he do? He lands into him. I don't know what he's doing. He's just land into him and they just kind of fall down. They don't get up. Yeah. But, uh, nothing compared the Kirk to avalanche. the Kirk avalanche. <laughs> Even I, I, we've heard some opinions on some of our lives that we do and other things about, you know, that movie, the original movie, like whether it was really good or was slow or whatever, but, um, it still tops, you know, uh, other movies at the time. And, and as far as going back and rewatching it, I, I like star Wars was great when it came out. I loved the theater. I never saw the black hole in the theater. First time I saw it was last year and I still liked it, but uh, there's something about star Trek that just draws yeah. you back in. I, I, I don't know what it is. I really don't. It's probably well, it's a likability thing. Yeah. It, it's the likability of the yeah. characters and the familiarization yeah. you have with them. It's kind of like, you know, you, you, it's almost like you, you see these characters, it's almost like you know them, you know, yeah. and, and they're, yeah. um, you know, and Agreed. with, well, well, with Mr. Sulu's character, you know, going back to, you know, to George, I mean, it's like, uh, in that article, they were talking about how he was originally going to be just like some lower deck, like lab assistant kind of a thing. And, you know, right. they brought him up to the bridge, you know, um, yeah. right. So, you know, and, you know, I mean, how many times you hear, you know, like people talking, you know, I mean, all all of these characters are just so much that you can connect with. Sure. You know, that, uh, you know, that you, you know, they're likable, you know, you want to know, you know, it's so they did a great job. They did a great job with that series, you know, with all, you know, character development on all the characters. Um, yeah. Even though this, you know, it was, you know, the big part is, you know, Captain Kirk and Spock, you know, I mean, that was that was the thing. Um, but I think all the characters were, were very likable and, you know, very relatable. And, and you know, that, that makes for good good storytelling. Yeah. And you know what? He never had an original Mego. They did him when they redid the Migos, but, like, there was no Chekhov and there was no Sulu, no Sulu. in the original Migos. And it wasn't until later that they did it, and the likeness was okay. It wasn't bad. It was actually an okay figure. But I, uh, I love yeah. those that that original Mego run of Star Trek figures is probably oh, right up there with Planet of the Apes for me. The the those are my two favorite lines of of Mego. Yeah, I agree with you. Those actually how many Neptunians? How many Neptunians do you have? Do uh, I have more I than you I'm yet? Still, yes, I think I still only have three. I think if I oh. there's the there's the there's the Enterprise playset for those that can't see that. Uh, uh, memory verse put together and bought from Lou, Lou and I have a war as to who can own the most Neptunians, <laughs> the most Neptunians, <laughs> complete we're, Neptunians. Actually, I think it, I think partials are okay too. We're, we're battling each other on eBay at night. The Neptunians, yeah, I, I agree. I think, um, I think the Neptunian was one of the better aliens, to be honest with you. I don't know, he's fantastic. But yeah, it's a shame they didn't do Sulu in the original. I think it would have been an excellent addition. Checkoff would have been great too. But they, you know, they did but, take their out in the last. Well, and it's surprising that they did not, since they did a bridge playset back then. You know, yeah, I mean, to get yeah. a complete bridge. I mean, they did Uhura. You know, it uh, didn't look necessarily an awful lot like. You know, well, the her. original one I think was better than the new one. That's just my opinion. Well, I, yes. I, yes. I, liked, I liked her better for sure. But as a, you know, but a, you know, to, to for all the all of the characters, I mean, it wasn't even a representation of 
of Sulu. Right. The new Sulu, they had the, the Mirror Mirror Universe Sulu, like the evil Sulu. Yes. Like, remember they had that playset that, that Migo yes. put out? I had that, that was, that was kind of cool. Yeah, I've got it. Yeah, that was, I mean, it's cool. That's a nice thing to do. And I think the Star Trek stuff were probably one of the most collectibles for there. But it is amazing that, you know, there are only certain ones that are done. But at least we got 14 versions of Kirk and 16 versions of Spock before you got. Right. Or, you know, right. Yeah. I think we've, yes. we've certainly given the man his due. Have we, have we, have we squeezed all of, the, <laughs> all of the blood out of that stone yet or what? All of the good <laughs> I am Dr. Durant, also known as Rich Hurley. You can find me on drdurantsanctum.com on YouTube. Please check us out. We do great episodes on comic books, old toys, and whatever I feel talking about that week. Various fruits and vegetables, I think. Various fruits and vegetables. (laughs) And I'm Max Overnighter, and I highly encourage you to listen to Dr. Durant's Sanctum. Um... (laughs) You can find you can find me on the Facebook group Migo Like, and also uh, every now and again on the uh, the YouTube my Migo Like. They let me jump in and throw in my two cents and sit in on the peanut gallery. Uh, I'm Lou Malagrana, and uh, of course our Facebook page Migo Like. We go in there and talk about all kinds of stuff. Although it's geared towards action figures, we talk to all kinds of uh, related items, if you will. We have a website, mymegolike.com, which has, at this point, I think there's about 184 pages of various action figures and knockoffs. And uh, we have everything from, well, let's just say we have a lot. There's a lot of stuff on there. And uh, we hope you guys will tune in and listen to the other podcasts that we did for Star Pod Log. Hey, so let's talk about our recent Star Trek experience, having game night with our local Star Trek group. Uh, yeah, so we went to, to Tabletops Games, and um, and they always have a game night there. So different people playing different games, but we played Star Trek Missions. And we have a Star Trek community here in Nashville, Tennessee, and once a month we go out to Tabletops. And this is a brand new game from WizKids. It's a card game. The description on the box says... In Star Trek missions, you'll explore all the mystery and excitement of the galaxy, featuring characters, locations, and equipment in familiar groups or in strange new combinations. Assemble a crew with anyone from Commander Riker to Damon Bach, grab a batleth, and take on challenges like organizing a diplomatic conference or getting trapped in the holodeck. The combinations in each hand create a brand new episode of the Enterprise's continuing mission. So the game takes roughly five minutes to teach, if that. It's basically pick a card, play a card, and you're looking for combinations based on the missions that you have in your hand. How would you describe the setup? It's a card game. Like like each card is worth its own set of points for different things, and each card is its own category. Like Worf is an alien, he's also Starfleet, he also... Uh, uses a weapon, those kind of things. And you can, and certain things match up together, like Worf and Kalar. You get more points if you have the Worf and the Kalar card. There's an advantage to being a Star Trek fan. If you're a non-Star Trek fan, you have to read all the text and figure it out. But if you're a Star Trek fan, you know that, okay, Data and Lal, that's a great combination. Yes. Riker and Troy, they're a couple. You'll get points for that. And so you're, you're matching cards together, 
and you're fulfilling missions. At the end of the game, you add up your points. I mean, the game has infinite play playability or replayability because it's never the same game twice. Yeah, because it you know you shuffle the cards, so there's any combination of cards you can get, and you can also um, discard when it's your turn and pick up new cards. So yeah, it's a, there's a, a a good variety there. The graphics are excellent. Highly recommend picking up Star Trek Missions by WizKids Games. Choosing a bank for a free gift may give you something temporarily, but choosing Atlantic Bank for service will give you something permanently. Because from four checking accounts, nine savings accounts, and dozens of other accounts, Atlantic Bankers will help you choose what's right for you. It's a new, customized approach to banking that makes the most of your money. And isn't that something you want from your bank permanently? Atlantic Bank, the best bank around. Starlog Magazine, issue number 48, cover date July 1981. The 5th Anniversary Spectacular Log Entries Latest News from the Worlds of Science Fiction and Fact Spock's Education As a result of the In Search Of series, which he hosts, Leonard Nimoy's attitudes on certain controversial theories and practices have been altered. On a lecture tour stopover at the State University of New York, Binghamton Campus in March, a mustachioed Nimoy commented that he is now a believer of, among other things, acupuncture and the multiple rifle or conspiracy theory of President Kennedy's assassination. You're a fan of that series In Search Of? Yeah, I thought it was a fun show to watch. Um, yeah, now, so now I need to see what he's talking about there. We, we gotta go back and watch those episodes. <laughs> but this being involved in that project must have sparked his interest in this. Uh, the article goes on to say that the tour's primary purpose is to encourage students to get involved in the U.S. space program. Kind of piggybacking off of what Nichelle Nichols spearheaded. Yeah, most definitely. And, and of course, Leonard Nimoy would, would be great for someone to encourage people to join NASA. Or to, or just to um, encourage people to support the space program. Hi, this is Bobby Nash, and this is from the article "Shuttles in Space: A Visionary Concept in Fact and on Film." This was a very fascinating article. I, I admit, as I, as a kid, when I was watching science fiction TV shows and movies, I didn't really give a lot of thought to shuttles in terms of practical uses. You know, as a kid watching, you know, uh, the Galileo from Star Trek or shuttles from Buck Rogers or Battlestar Galactica, the really, I, I thought, oh, it's, it's like getting in the car and going somewhere. It was just a mode of transportation that got the characters from A to B. As I've gotten older and, and, and watched more and started writing as well and thinking about these things in more practical terms of other than just how cool they look or what, you know, getting characters moving the plot along. I find that I, I really appreciate the shuttles that have real like functionality to them, you know, for all it's as cool as it was, you know, Star Trek shuttlecraft, the Galileo seven is probably the most well-known really. It's just a giant box with that, that ferries characters around but the design of it is great for character interactions. 
Um, they can sit together and chat together and, you know, Star Trek, which is a very character heavy show that really works for, for functionality though, you know, there's not a lot there, you know, later shows with the runabouts, for example, with multiple compartments, I thought, you know, kind of took that similar, you know, thought of having room for people to talk but still gave it more of a functionality of allowing it to be multiple things and good for different, you know, it could be in battle or it could just be to ferry things or just to get people from A to B or to, to you know, rescue people or whatever. Um, but in terms of that functionality that I mentioned, you know, probably the one that really stands out to me as being perfect for that are the Eagles from Space 1999, which are heavily designed to be workhorses. I mean, that's what they are. They're it's it's like uh, it's part uh, forklift, it's part eighteen uh, wheeler, it's part uh, uh, cargo container, cargo ship, and I, I love that multifunctionality that works. And so, and so it looks as cool as they look, and they do look cool. They, they, they are designed with that functionality in mind. So I think the, the coolness is just kind of a, almost a byproduct of what they're used for. And I, I really do appreciate the, those particular shuttles for, for that. They're, you know, and the, the fact that they were able to use them for so many things but when I think of the the eagles in the show, it's it's usually them transporting something or carrying something or picking something up. I love the way they they take off and land. I just for me that's when we get. I think when we start doing shuttles and we start doing things on the moon or eventually get to other planets, I suspect the eagle the the design of the eagle will will work somehow into the real world design of the shuttles that we have today you know where they can take off and land on that vertical without having to have a runway or having to be stood up and launched you know being able to just vertically lift and go you know if we were to ever set up bases on the moon for example you know that would be a big thing to come in handy to because you wouldn't want to try you wouldn't you wouldn't want to set up like launch sites like we have at nasa here on the moon to you know a vertical takeoff i think would be much more helpful um so yeah so i i think that's that's great i, I mean we've obviously the the real world shuttles um i'm sure have technically advanced since the early days but we don't, you know, we really haven't created anything that's vastly different, you know, from the shuttles that we've had. Um, I know, you know, space travel has kind of, you know, kind of fallen by the wayside a bit. So, uh, but uh, I'm excited to, to see that things are, you know, we're starting to get back out there and do more stuff. Certainly the, uh, the, uh, shooting the missile at the, or the, uh, at the, uh, asteroid, uh, right before I, uh, a few days before I recorded this was, 
you know, quite the accomplishment. And so I would love to see, I would love to see a new shuttle design and I would love to see us get out there and uh, try new things. So uh, some of my favorite shuttles, um, I mean, we mentioned the Eagle. The Eagle is a beautiful one. Um, I am a big fan of the ships used in 2001 just because, again, of that practicality and that they tried to use some real world, you know, logic with the spinning and how things work, you know, with to, to for artificial gravity and things like that. So I'm excited about those. I mean, I don't know if 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 the talk of shuttles are we going into, you know, star fighters and more battle things, you know, those are always cool, but I don't know as how effective those would be in, in a real world scenario, but certainly, you know, when it comes to science fiction movies and TV, having fast ships that can maneuver and flip and roll and, you know, almost dogfight, I guess, in space, um, which I am, you know, with no, with no gravity, I don't know how that works, but, um, cause I am, I am, I'm no scientist. I just fake it, you know, for when I write, um, <laughs> or research it enough to, to pretend that I know what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, I, I do like the idea of, you know, different size spacecraft of being able to get out there and do different things and different ships are designed for different jobs, um, which is a very real world thing. I mean, you know, there are different kind of forklifts. There are different kind of vehicles. There are different kind of things here on earth. So I think when you go into especially as a as a writer, a fiction writer, when you go into looking at writing for a science fiction, you know, format, I like to start with the basics of a real world, you know. Um, a great example, um, this is getting away from shuttles, and I apologize for that, but uh, a great example of using a real world uh, tech in, in a science fiction setting would be the power loader in Aliens, which is very much a sci-fi analog of a large forklift that would be used on a, you know, to unload cargo off of a ship or a train. Um, so yeah, so, so taking those things that we find familiar and then, you know, putting the sci-fi spin on it, you know, I think shuttles... You know, especially like early shuttles, like again, we go back to the Galileo, That that's a nice uh, comparison to a van on Earth or a bus. You know, so using that as your starting point, you add the sci-fi images onto it. So the Galileo is, a, is, like, a, is like a van we're, uh, in space, whereas a runabout is more like a hot rod. Um, you know, the Eagle is your 18 wheeler or, or, you know, so using those to, as a way for fiction, uh, plus it gives your, your, your readers that familiarity to, to lock onto. So I think I might've got a little off field and I apologize for that, but I do love shuttles. This was a very interesting article. I, you know, and there's a lot of cool pictures in the article. I'm assuming you guys have a link to it. Um, I do you know, science fiction has, I, I think the two, the science fiction and reality of shuttles feed off of each other, you know, 
sci-fi kind of goes, okay, we know what they can do. Here's what we'd like to see the future of shuttles. And then the real world catches up. We've, we've obviously seen that in so many technological advances, uh, you know, uh, ta- uh, computer tablets or cell phones. Um, you know, 40, 50 years ago, the idea of a smartphone that you could put your, in your pocket that has access to <clears throat> all the information that's out there and where you could instantly communicate with people around the world was pure science fiction. And today, you know, I'm recording this on my phone. <laughs> uh, it's so, so yeah, so I love that this article, how it, it, it talks about not only the, the TV and movie and fiction aspect of shuttles, but compares and contrasts with the real world stuff. And uh, so it's fascinating. And I'm, you know, I don't know if I, you know, will ever do all this, you know, futuristic colonization of the moon or other planets in my lifetime. But it is very cool to think about as a, especially as a science fiction fan, you know, I, I love the idea of us going out there and shuttles zipping back and forth between the moon and earth or, wherever and yeah it's a it's a lot of fun to think about and yeah i uh like i said i don't know if it'll happen you know in my lifetime but i'm excited for the future i mean eventually we have to we have to get out there and explore again and i you know i'm excited for that so um i'm bobby nash uh thank you so much for letting me be part of this discussion it was a lot of fun um as i mentioned earlier i'm a writer you can Learn all about my work at bobbynash.com. I'm all over social media. There's links on the site. Please stop by and say hello. Hello, listeners. This is Fleet Captain Lauren White of Starfleet International, the largest Star Trek fan club in the world. I invite you to join this amazing organization to make new friends that love Star Trek, have fun, and to give back to our communities. In the meantime, stay tuned to Starpod Trek, the podcast that explores Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Future conventions. These are some of the conventions that were planned for 1981. Midwest Con, 32. That was in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, June 26th through 28th. Empire Con, at the New York Statler. New York, New York, July 3rd through 5th. In conjunction, Indianapolis, Indiana, July 3rd through 5th. You know, that's still going on. Yeah, it is. Star Trek Space Expo. Hazlet, New Jersey, July 4th and 5th. Archon 5. St. Louis, Missouri, July 10th through 12th. Oakcon 81. Tulsa, Oklahoma, July 18th through 19th. But there's a note, the convention has been canceled. Mark of Paracon. State College, Pennsylvania, July 24th through 26th. August Party, Trek Convention. Rosslyn West Park Hotel, Washington, D.C., August 7th through 9th. Panopticon West, Tulsa, Oklahoma, August 14th through 16th. Star Trek America, Capital Expositions, New York, New York, September 5th through 7th. And Tri-City Con, Sunny 
Binghamton, New York, September 18th through 20th. Hi, I'm Josh Hood, artist on uh, Star Trek Deviations, Star Trek Waypoint, among others. And when I want to hear more about Star Trek, I always listen to Star Pod Log. Star Trek, the newspaper comics, volume 1. 1979-1981. So we know that Star Trek became a comic book series around the release of the motion picture in 1979. And it was a smart thing to have a daily newspaper comic. Yeah, so the newspaper comics were interesting. They were, um, you know, these own little, little stories. And, of course, each one would be continued into the next one. So the next one had to kind of repeat a few things to, to sort of get you caught up from the previous one. The preface is interesting because it gives the history of how this happened and how Paramount wanted to have a regular comic strip. We know that previously there were some science fiction comics in the newspaper such as Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon. Here's where the problem lay though in that why so many people never knew this comic strip existed. Because Star Wars already had a comic strip and some newspapers felt they didn't want too much science fiction in their newspaper. So they chose either Star Wars or Star Trek. Now in my area, New Haven, Connecticut, we were reading Star Wars comics in the newspapers. In fact, my grandfather, my brother, and I would cut out the strips and then collect them and paste them in a notebook to read them in sequence. So I had no idea there was a Star Trek comic strip. How about you? Did you know about this when you were a kid? No, I didn't. I don't really remember either Star Trek or Star Wars being in our newspaper. So yeah, so and I can't imagine who like would have picked the uh the Star Trek one if they had to choose. I mean, most it seems like most of them would have chosen the Star Wars. So I wonder how many people really got to read the Star Trek comic strip. Now, this volume that's in published by IDW Comics, it is readily available. What's interesting about it, it not only reprints the comic strips, but it also reprints any of the advertisements that are associated with it, and also a page of the press kit that was presented to newspaper editors. For instance, listen to how this new comic book strip was presented to these executives. Star Trek, the legend, is now Star Trek, the comic strip. Join the crew of the USS Starship Enterprise in its mission to explore strange new worlds and to seek out new life and new civilizations. Your readers can now participate in the adventures of Captain Kirk, Spock, Scotty, Bones, Sulu, Chekhov, Lieutenant Uhura, and the bald and beautiful new female navigator, Ilea, every day plus Sundays in this fascinating comic strip. Star Trek, its characters and its stars have inspired 371 fan clubs and almost weekly conventions drawing up to 20,000 people in cities throughout the country. The Trekkie phenomenon has spawned more than 50 books, 400 fan publications, and several masters and doctoral theses. Readers of all ages love Star Trek and will follow its comic strip adventures through uncharted space with fervor. So this was... I mean, that applied to that time it, that it was written. That's true. It goes on to say, The Star Trek comic strip will be the beneficiary 
of the massive promotion accompanying the release of the new Star Trek motion picture. The comic strip will run in eight-week sequences. The storyline will be the same for both the daily and Sunday strips with the expansion of the plot on Sundays. However, both the daily and the Sunday strips can stand alone effectively. The artist, Thomas Warkington, a lifelong science fiction fan with an impressive list of credits to his name, will be producing both the art and the stories. Not only is he a superb draftsman, but his cliffhanging plots leave you thirsting for more. We know this fabulous new comic strip is a surefire winner. Launch Star Trek in your newspaper and, as Captain Kirk says, boldly go where no man has gone before. So some newspaper strips did pick, or newspapers did pick up this strip. And it, it ran for a number of years, all the way up to 1983. So this two-volume collection, and we're discussing volume one right now, highlights... Uh, what an amazing series this is. It's pretty impressive that the author or the writer of the series is also the artist. Yeah, that doesn't happen a lot. He's got the face characteristics down perfect. You could tell who everyone is. And that's one thing that Star Trek has suffered with over the years. Sometimes the artists really don't have a keen eye for the details to make the actors look like the, the characters. So, but this one was, yeah, well done in the artwork. And the stories were kind of elementary, but that's the way they were intended. I got a kick out of Ilea being on the ship. So you're trying to figure out, well, when does this exactly take place? Yeah, how can she be on it? Yeah, <laughs> the only time we saw her was the motion picture, and then, and then she evolved in that movie. So we're like, so she's not going to be around afterwards. It's one of those things where Paramount just they would license characters off, license the name off, and let the artist and writer take liberties as well. There was no one overseeing the accuracy or to see if anything fit in the canon. So we can say this is post-Gold Key. It wasn't that extreme because for, the stories really do make sense and they are enjoyable to read, but they're not extremely off-kilter like the previous 60s series was. So it is something you can enjoy as a Star Trek fan. And this volume has in back reprints of the Star Trek Happy Meals. Oh, yeah. That was neat, too, to go back and look at that. All the box art. Yeah. that I mean, it, it was fun back then as a kid. I never really thought about it as such, but I remember one of the toys was a little comic book viewer. You got these little scrolls, and you'd pull, spin the wheel around, and you would read a comic book story. And since that's comic book related, they reprinted this in the volume. So, this is Volume 1, 1979-1981, to Star Trek, the newspaper comics, produced by IDW. Alright, cats and kittens, welcome back to Starlog Critique with your buddy, Bruce Burt Bertner. And we are going to delve into Will We Let Haley Fly By Unexplored by Joseph Baverka. Now, some people pronounce it Halley's Comet. Some people say Haley's Comet. Some people call it Holly's Comet. For all intents and purposes, we're going with Haley's Comet. Now, you may ask, what is a comet? To most of us, a comet is a luminous object with a long tail stretching across a fair fraction of the sky. There are very few comets such as Haley's. In fact, 
Halley is the only bright active comet whose orbit we know well enough to be able to send a spacecraft to the vicinity of its nucleus. Thus, Halley's 1986 apparition provides the only chance within our lifetime of obtaining certain crucial science data on bright active comets. So, the rest of the article goes on to posit that it's very important to visit this comet to gather the scientific data. It hadn't been done yet. This is uh, way earlier than the uh, comet was actually swinging by, but this is a uh, basically a uh, Starlog piece where they urge uh, the readers to get involved and try to uh, encourage Congress and NASA to budget a uh, flyby to get uh, information about the comet. Let's fast forward all these years later. During its 1986 visit to the inner solar system, Halley's Comet became the first comet to be observed in detail by spacecraft, providing the first observational data on the structure of a comet nucleus and the mechanism of coma and tail formation. Here it is in 2022. It is now understood that the surface of Halley is largely composed of dusty, non-volatile materials, and only a small portion of it is icy. So there you go. We know uh, a bit more about comets because of uh, the work done by uh, Newton and Halley himself. We know that we uh, did a flyby mission in uh, 86 so that we could get more information. And we learned that comets in their core are mostly uh, uh, dirt and dust and whatnot. And very, very little of it is icy water. Our final article reads, Why One Harvard Astronomer Believes This Asteroid Is an Alien Ship. This is from MSN.com. It was published yesterday at 8.19 p.m. Again, the article is entitled, Why One Harvard Astronomer Believes This Asteroid Is an Alien Ship, and why it's uh, important to our comet uh, article from Starlog, issue number 48. Shiny, reddish in color oblong, somewhere between 300 and 3,000 feet in length and moving at an eye-watering 16 miles a second, the object zoomed into our system and passed the sun. When Canadian astronomer Robert Warrick first noticed the thing in a telescope survey in October 2017, it was already on its way out of our system. Astronomers were baffled by this object, which they dubbed Oumuamua. That's Hawaiian for scout. No one knew for sure what Oumuamua is or isn't. Just one leading scientist was willing to say that what others may have only been thinking, Oumuamua's speed, course, and shape were possible signs it's an alien craft, according to Ave Loeb, a Harvard physicist. The possibility of an artificial origin for Oumuamua must be considered, Loeb wrote in a Hallmark 2017 study. Loeb's position that we should at least entertain the possibility that Oumuamua is a spacecraft and investigate accordingly has been controversial to say the least. Now a Chinese team is trying to dismantle one key part of Loeb's argument. If Oumuamua is an alien ship, it might be propelled by a super thin light sail that captures particles from stars. We call them tachyons. There's no sign of a sail in the scant data we have on Oumuamua, the Chinese team asserted in their own peer-reviewed study, which has been accepted for publication in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics and appeared online Wednesday. We can conclude that the possibility of a Muamua being a light sail is extremely unlikely, says a bunch of Chinese talking guys. It should go without saying that Loeb disagrees. There are a few points that the authors have overlooked, Loeb told Daily Beast. The argument from Sheng Fei 
and his colleagues boils down to this. Light sails, which capture photons the way ship sails captured wind on Earth, are an increasingly popular way of propelling sk- spacecraft we built here on Earth. Tend to the big square things that reflect a lot of light or very little light. It all depends on the angle to the observer as well as how much the craft they're attached to spin. So as the Muamua streaked across the solar system, it should have been really bright at some points and all but invisible at others. And while the Muamua did get brighter and darker from our point of view on its weird journey, it didn't get bright enough. If it was a light sail, the brightness variation should be much larger. But there's another explanation for a Muamua's relative dimness, Loeb said, and it's the shape of a possible sail. The Chinese scientists assumed that if a Muamua were a light sail craft, it would have a flat sail. A flat sail would reflect more light as its brightest moments than, say, a concave sail. But the sail need not be flat, Loeb explained. He pointed out that he's been working with the Breakthrough Initiative, a science startup founded by Russian billionaire Yuri Borosovich, on umbrella-shaped light sails as part of the initiative Starshot Space Probe Project. The whole argument over the shape of the possible sail might actually be moot. A Muamua could be a spacecraft in other forms. And Shang Fai conceded this. So I use this last uh, article just to point out that from comets in Halley's day uh, in the 16 to 1700s and even before to today, these spacecraft bear deep, deep looking into. And I'm not calling a comet a spacecraft. That's not what I'm saying. But we could say that if these comets did see life on Earth, which is an it's a possibility, they contain amino acids, which are the building blocks of life, then what if a Muamua were uh, one such uh, manner of uh, seeding life throughout the solar systems, which we don't know. Anyway, I hope you've been as entertained as I have. It's a great article. If you have more questions, look me up. I'll give you all the answers, because that's what I do. I'm the answer man. This is Starlog's 5th anniversary edition, and as always, they end the magazine with celebrities talking about how much they admire Starlog publications. So let's consider some of these. Well wishes to Starlog. Yes, Govan Putkamer, a NASA consultant and science advisor for Star Trek The Motion Picture. He said, Starlog's 5th anniversary is a proud event for Carrie O'Quinn Norman Jacobs, and the staff. The magazine's dauntless dedication to humankind's future and to the space program is a ringing statement for the potential in all of us and for our longed-for ability to make technological evolution part of natural biological evolution. That yearning for humankind's maturation has spoken again and again from the pages of Starlog and your editorials. May the future be as good and bright for your magazine as it should be for the space program. Alan Dean Foster, and Star Trek fans know him as the author of Star Trek Logs, the series of books that adapted and added to the animated series, writes, As far as I know, there are only two groups of people in this world who regularly criticize dreams, psychiatrists and science fiction readers. The psychiatrists have their own internal journals, and at least one popular magazine, Psychology Today. Science fiction readers publish an enormous amount of criticism and discussion through the medium of fanzines. Beyond the fanzines lie the prozines, 
In between are publications which partake of both. There aren't many of them, because it's tough to strike a balance between having fun and getting serious. Starlog manages to achieve both. Keep up the good work, and happy birthday. Isaac Asimov says, I understand the fifth anniversary is wooden, which suits Starlog. The 75th is diamond, which also suits Starlog. May this be an indication that you will progress from 5th to 75th smoothly and triumphantly. I don't even understand that one. Yeah, it was pretty weird. Why would wood fit Starlog? Like, what? What is he saying? (laughs) (laughs) Walter Koenig writes, Starlog, fair as a star, when only one is shining in the sky. Wordsworth, congratulations on five years. Now may you go on five times five. David Gerald writes, Five years of Starlog. The mind boggles. I hope the next five years are even better. Well, of course, and he was a regular columnist for Starlog. Harlan Ellison concludes by saying, Five years. Well, imagine our surprise. And everyone said it would never last. But as I was saying to Eve Curie just yesterday... She was downstairs putting up some neat foot preserves while I was going upstairs in the lab discovering radium. Glorioski, mother, those little dickens at Starlog have gone and went five full years, land of Goshen, to which Eve made response. Stop acting like a schmuck, Ellison, and just wish them a happy anniversary. That's the trouble with the new liberated woman. They have an extremely low tolerance for jerks. Okay, that's weird. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.